Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member. It's my pleasure to introduce our forum today, a conversation about the power of social determinants of health in the health outcomes that we all experience. We have with us Dr. Amy Acton. She's Director of Health for the Ohio Department of Health and Dr. Toby Cosgrove, Executive Advisor and former President and CEO of the Cleveland Clinic. He's also here today in his capacity as Co-Chair of the United Way of Greater Cleveland's campaign. Now we've all heard that Americans' overall health and life expectancy is often determined not by their genes, but by where they live. For many years now, we've been having conversations here at the City Club that touch on this idea that your zip code is, in fact, your destiny. There are studies everywhere now that social determinants of health, the environments in which people live, are born, live, learn, work, and play, account for nearly 70% of health outcomes. A recent study locally affirms these trends here in Ohio the Ohio Policy Institute, or the Health Policy Institute of Ohio, pardon me, found that though our state performs well when it comes to access to health care, we are ranked in the bottom quartile in terms of other factors that influence overall health, including physical, social, and economic environments. In the end, Ohioans spend more on health care, yet are as a population less healthy than populations in other states. Am I, is that all factually correct so far? Yes. That is factually correct. Okay. <laughs> That's disappointing. I was hoping for better news. Okay. Um, today we're going to talk about what all of this really means, what we do about it, and specifically how all of this might connect to state health policy and the work of local health and human service agencies and health systems. Dr. Amy Acton was nominated Director of Health at the Ohio Department of Health by Governor Mike DeWine in February. It's great to have you in the position. Uh, she's a licensed physician in preventive medicine with a master's in public health. She most recently was working at the Columbus Foundation, and she has more than 30 years of experience in medical practice, government and community service, healthcare, policy and advocacy, academic and nonprofit administration, consulting, teaching, and data analysis, as well as child rearing, I think, right? There was a little yeah. of that. Yeah, there's a little of that. <laughs> Dr. Cosgrove, many of you know already is now an executive advisor to the Cleveland Clinic during his tenure, his long tenure as president and CEO there. He was responsible for a $5 billion healthcare system encompassing 28 different institutions with a focus on improving the patient experience and clinical services while initiating programs to improve wellness among patients, employees, and the overall community. And under his leadership, the Cleveland Clinic grew to uh, one of the largest private employers in the state of Ohio. Please join me, friends, in welcoming both to Dr. Toby Cosgrove and Amy Acton. Dr. Acton, I want to start with you. What are we talking about? What do you, when, when, when you say the phrase social determinants of health, what do you mean? What I mean is that uh, I believe quite deeply and from my scientific background that not everyone has the same opportunity in Ohio to be healthy. And I come by that knowledge a couple of ways. If I might just share Go two ahead. stories. Um, one is I grew up in Youngstown. Um, and went to Neomed, Neo-UCOM as it was called back in the day. 
Um, but um, as a kid in Youngstown, I grew up in pretty rough circumstances, and I, I know I'm not alone in this room. Many of us have. Um, but I experienced things like homelessness, um, living in a tent in the middle of winter, really rough circumstances. I was removed at the age of 12 and then moved to Liberty, a little nicer area. And, and when you had, say, I'm sorry, when you say removed from your from parents' care? Yes. And um, when, when that happened, what I realized was I, it was luck of the draw. And my friends that I knew growing up on the north side of Youngstown just had completely different life course um, than I did, but they weren't any less smart, they weren't any less kind than the kids at my new school. They just didn't have the opportunities that I'd been afforded. And that changed my life quite a bit as I uh, put myself through med school, went to the Bronx. It was the crack cocaine epidemic, and half the kids in my peds population were going to be dead by the age of three. And all of these things helped me realize that in med school, I had learned so much about sick care, but I was seeing things too late. Um, and that's what led me to preventive medicine, and it helped me understand two things. Um, one, in the last century, when my grandfather came to this country to work in the steel mills in 1900 from Europe, he expected to live to the age of 48. We then, he then lived to 84. We lived 30 years longer in just one century. But what I found was that only five of those years were due to everything I'd learned mostly in med school and all the very high tech things, which we love to have. We need them and they're life saving. But 25 of the years, that extra 30 years, came from safe food, clean water, uh, safe work environment, kids being able to go to school, safety in our houses, streets and traffic laws, all these things that we do collectively as a society, the built environment that creates opportunities for us to live a healthy life. So that's when I discovered public health. So only a third of the things that affect our health are in our control. And they're the ones we have to control. We have to do those hard things. We have to try to eat right. I didn't do so well here. Um, try to diet, do those things. But two-thirds of them have to be done through the policy and the work that everyone here in this room is doing every day. Mm -hmm. Those are the social determinants. And those are the things that we're not quite getting right yet mm -hmm. in this country. Dr. Cosgrove, when you think of have been thinking about social determinants of health over the course of your career, uh, first as a surgeon and then as a, as, uh, in these leadership roles. How has your thinking evolved and where is it now? Well, I think we could go back to some of the things that you talked about earlier. And, and just in Cleveland, the difference is just stark about where people live. For example, there is some areas right around the Cleveland Clinic where the life expectancy is 65 years. Mm -hmm. And there's areas a few blocks away in the corner of Shaker Heights where the life expectancy is 88. That's 23 years difference. And just stunning. And you know, we now realize that we, uh, as great as the technology is currently, we cannot fix the, a lot of these problems. Um, and the problems really fall into two categories, I think. One is what is personally done, and you talk about the food that you eat and uh, whether you smoke or not, et cetera. And then there's the social determinants, which are education, housing, food, uh, income, uh, all of those things which are major determinants. <clears throat> One of the problems that we have in Cleveland, and that it's a sort of the common denominator for these issues, is poverty. 
And, you know, one in four people uh, in Cleveland are living in poverty. And right now, 50, we have the highest percentage of children living in poverty in the country, with 50% of the students uh, living in poverty of the children here. Um, and you stop and think, you know, something that I didn't realize until very recently, if you grow up in poverty, it changes the uh, anatomy and the physiology of your brain. Mm-hmm. So that can sp- explain a lot of things that go on in, in people dropping out of school and not getting a good education. And, and it all tumbles down in a vicious cycle from the very beginning. So we, we have serious issues uh, that we have to deal with and it goes back to poverty. And you know, the, the really sad fact is, and most of you may know this, some of you may not, that we've now surpassed Detroit as the poorest major city in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we and all, all these social determinants have a basis in that poverty, and we have to do something about it. Do you it, it, listening to you speak about it? I'm I'm thinking like yeah, these aren't this isn't something a heart surgery can fix. No, um, this is not. Um, and poverty, as writ large, it feels like we're you know trying to boil the ocean. Go ahead. Well, Dan, you know, um, we stopped and thought, I thought we had three things that we needed to do at the Cleveland Clinic uh, during the time that I had that opportunity to lead. One is we obviously had to provide great health care. Two, a lot of jobs. And if you look right now, um, there are 120,000 jobs that are somehow affected in the state of Ohio from the Cleveland Clinic. And third, we put our emphasis on education and starting right from preschool right straight through um, because we think that those are the places that you can really make a difference in those social determinants that we talked about. Um, One of the, there's a sort of narrative that you sometimes hear people talk about, Dr. Acton, that that these outcomes are really about people's choices. I want you to talk about that narrative and the reality. Um, It helps to have the opportunity to make good choices and not everyone has the same opportunity. Um, For instance, walking for exercise, if it's not safe outside, if you're worried to send your kids out, you're not going to be taking a walk at night with a dog like we enjoy. You're not going to have the choice when there's no grocery store in your neighborhood to get fresh food or cook. So we don't all have have those same choices. And um Connected to that, of course, is also the lead exposure problem that we've yeah. been really trying to, as a community, yes. that our community has been really trying to face head on recently, but hasn't yet implemented any policies. Um, yes. As a somebody ch- tasked with thinking about this at the state level, mm-hmm. Cleveland's not alone, obviously, no. and it's not just Cleveland when we think about greater Cleveland. It's, it's a, a lot of our older suburbs as well that have these, these lead problems in the, in the housing mm-hmm. stock. Um, what it, how is the state thinking about this? Well, I can say, and I've said in my testimonies, house, housing is a health issue and health policy is health policy. Um, the governor, actually his son uh, was a teacher mm-hmm. in, in Cleveland schools, has become a principal, um, but that's when he first learned about the problems his son was seeing in school, again, preventable. The governor is deeply committed to addressing this issue. We were here very early on, um, right after the election. Um, 
he is creating a task force uh, through his um, director of children's initiatives. Cleveland has a unique history even compared to other cities when it comes to lead poisoning. I remember being a kid and the sign would go up on the house and you would just rip it off and stay in the apartment. I mean, it's, you know, we have such a high uh, housing stock that's pre-78. So getting at this will never be done by government alone. Um, and I come to this thought after my time in philanthropy, but we do need to do a couple key policy things to make it easier for folks at the community level to address this. You'll see a couple things. There's a huge um, investment in the budget across several agencies. There's investment in workers and loan repayment programs because there's shortage of workers who can actually do the lead safe work. Um, but more importantly is we have to do primary prevention. We have to get the houses before a kid tests positive for lead poisoning. Um, in the budget right now is a tax credit for middle, up, middle class homeowners as well. So you can be making over $100,000 a year. You can get a $10,000 tax credit to do some of the lead safe work. That's another initiative the governor has put into the budget. But I will tell you, I, I, I come to this job um, not as a politician, uh, did not know the governor, did not know politics. I, I was a bipartisan maternal and child health person through and through, but I was working at the Columbus Foundation. And what I learned is in public health, we have to bring everyone around the table. The first question I would always tell my students is who's at the table? And I'm looking to my friends in philanthropy here because we need to be at the table Business needs to be at the table. Then our community experts and the nonprofits, and I know you're doing that. I've seen, I've been following in the news the work you're doing. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing progress. I'm meeting people at the grassroots level who are going door to door to get people to take this issue on. But that's how we're gonna actually begin to solve something as daunting as the volume here. There'll never be enough state dollars. So, but we will try to fit, get the policies that help support the work you're doing here. If, um, if, if lead in, in residences is a solvable problem, if it is like eating the elephant one bite at a time, it can, it can be done eventually. Um, and the state is providing supportive policy and the city and, and other municipalities are trying to figure it out. Dr. Cosgrove, when you look at the landscape of other social determinants, what are the other ones that are solvable immediately? Well, I think obviously food is one of those. Uh, and uh, clearly that has, uh, we're trying to bring in uh, food into areas around uh, our facilities. We have farmers markets, we support uh, the food bank. Uh, this is a huge issue when you've got uh, really uh, the highest incidence uh, in the United States of uh, adults who have uh, food needs here in Cleveland. Uh, and I really need to do that. So. The, the second one I think that we've got to look at is education. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, the move to pre -K, uh, supporting pre-K and uh, just say yes mm -hmm. uh, for moving uh, st students through uh, high school here and on to college is mm -hmm. a, a fantastic program here uh, in, in uh, Cleveland. Um, and you know, we're, we're always gonna have to deal with uh, violence which is rampant in mm -hmm. our, our communities. And you know that is not going to be an easy issue in, in, under any circumstances. Mm -hmm. 
but um, it is multifaceted uh, across all of our organizations. I guess I guess the, the one of the issues I'm going back to the financial thing is, you know, we the question the solution is frequently put out there. We'll just raise salaries, and and that, yeah. <clears throat> You know, um, and you know that we have gone to 14, the minimum wage at the clinic at 14, and uh, next year or 2000 it'll be um, $15 an hour. But that is that really doesn't totally solve the problem. The problem is creating opportunities for people to work mm -hmm. and creating jobs, uh, and that is an issue that goes to every segment of uh, society. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we all have to figure out how to do it, and also preparing people to, for the workforce. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things we've done for preparing people for the workforce is we try to introduce students, uh, high school students, to opportunities to work in healthcare. And we had something like 8,000 students come in last year to get introduced to it. We, uh, I think, I remember introducing at this the first time I spoke here about an internship program that we have students uh, come in. Uh, during the summer, they get salary to work at the Cleveland Clinic, and they get introduced uh, to that. <clears throat> the, the Stokes internship with 100 students uh, coming in, so we have about 200 students coming in in the summertime. I wish more organizations would bring in a few students during the summer and, and expose them to what it's like at the work and the, uh, be in the workplace. I think, and then. Also, we're trying to prepare other uh, individuals to work at the Cleveland Clinic uh, by uh, training them in internships uh, across the, all of our facilities just to provide jobs. And we want to do it locally uh, to bring the jobs that surround our organizations into the clinic and not bring people from distance. Yeah. It's clear that the anchor institutions such as the Cleveland Clinic <coughs> and others have a, a really important role to Absolutely. play. In providing economic opportunity to the neighborhoods around them. I want to come back to a couple of things that you that you pointed to in terms of back to the some of these specific social determinants. Food insecurity and violence were two that you mentioned. And as you said that, I was reminded that food insecurity and exposure to violence are both seen as adverse childhood experiences. Yes. Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris recently spoke here I at the know. City mm -hmm. Club, a very important conversation about what are referred to as ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and it's something that exposure to three or more is likely that to then create, is, it, it is itself a set of social determinants that are likely to create poor health outcomes in the, in the future. Can you talk about yes. our growing understanding of that, of that science? Yes, so I, it's something I find quite fascinating, and I would have loved to have heard her speak here. It's available um, online at City I know, that's right. <laughs> you have such a great advocate <laughs> in him. Um, you know, Ohio has our children rate higher. We have more adverse childhood experiences across Ohio. And remember, these disparities we see, sometimes they're urban, they're in Appalachia, there's rural versus urban, there's disparities based on gender, all these things, but we have more children growing up experiencing adverse childhood experiences. Um, I did a lot of Can work. Can you explain for those who don't oh, know what, so specifically sorry. what they, yes. what the sort so of list of the them, research, if you remember most some of them. Yeah, the research behind it is really growing up, witnessing violence, having a parent who's incarcerated, abuse, domestic violence, um, divorce, it's a scale of up to 10. food insecurity. Yes, yeah. and, and, and the researcher himself said, who I just met this past week, um, that did the work, um, I believe it's Paludi, 
he, um, he said that it was an accident that he, he just started with the 10 he knew. We know there are more. Um, but that's where this research began. And um, we have children, and I know you're trying to address youth homelessness. It's an emerging thing we're starting to get our head around in our community. In Columbus, we were. These are kids who age out of foster care. They're LGBTQ. They, they run away from abuse. They're not running to go do fun things. They're running away from awful things. They're couch surfing, so we don't know who all they are. Um, on a scale that we did, a study we did in Columbus, they rated at an 8 out of 10, which is the same as my, my background is Jewish. Holocaust survivors rate an 8 out of 10. So kids are experiencing tremendous amount of abuse. They're going on to be parents. Now it's a two-generational two issue we're facing where they too are experiencing. The parents themselves have, have not overcome that. But the good news is there are interventions that we can do. When you've had a hard childhood, you never fully overcome it. I'm still hypervigilant. I still have things I carry. My life expectancy is probably, I'm sorry, not the same. But you can, you can teach people their resiliency skills and you can intervene early. So one of the governor's major objectives, 1201 at his inauguration, he declared a new director of childhood initi initiatives, Leanne Cornyn. And her job was to take on issues like this. His number one budget priority is an investment in home visiting, starting intervening in pregnancy all the way toward age three, getting folks in the home who are able to intervene both with the parent and the child. Um, child development has changed, kindergarten readiness, which we know is a predictor of so many uh, outcomes in life has changed. The parents are connected to opportunities to work. Um, but they address adverse childhood experiences, they screen for lead poisoning, they screen for asthma risk. So it's getting people, this is so old school, it seems crazy to be talking about it as if it's something new. We know it works. When I worked in Rwanda, um, in rural Rwanda, post-genocide, the infant mortality rate in villages was lower than it is a block from here. That is unacceptable, and they don't have the money to throw at things. They did it with community health workers, training the actual women from the neighborhood on enough health things that they could intervene with other moms, and it works. And we're doing it again. We're doing it again with this home visiting investment. So, and I know you're doing it in your community, but we want to give you, we want to help support you in that. Um, you just said something really interesting, Dr. Acton, that um, it's crazy that we're talking about this as, as if it's something new. <laughs> Does it feel that way? Does well, to it, me. Maybe well, I'm that, getting well, old. You, I, I mean, you said, <laughs> yeah. you said that. I was just quoting, yes. quoting what you said. How, how, how did we get here? Why haven't we been dealing with this in the right way the last uh, two decades, the last three decades? Why? Why? I feel that people are doing it, and they're doing it in pockets, but they don't have enough resources. And the trouble with prevention is that when you prevent something, the measles outbreak we're not having right now, we don't pay for the things, the silent victories of public health. And so we spend a penny on the dollar. The other thing is when I invest in it and we make this investment, and the governor said this himself in home visiting, he will not live to see the outcome of it. Somebody else might benefit. Um, the health insurance company will benefit when there's not an admission that wasn't necessary. Like when we invest, um, but we need to invest preventatively to see the real changes we want to see. And in Ohio, 
We have not invested. Our health departments, our nonprofits are starving. Your health departments here have not recovered from the recession. The health department I inherited, 400 people down, 100 vacancies, devastated. We're not investing in this. We're turning that around. We have a governor, and I'm telling you this, I am not a partisan person. I have not seen in 30 years someone put health and human services at the top of their agenda. I sat with the editors of the Cleveland Plain Dealer who were, came up to me and said, we didn't see this coming. Um, this governor, I'm telling you, as a human being, a humble citizen who is now sitting in a strange job, every day he calls me going, this is unacceptable. What is going on here? What is happening to the aging population? What happened in the nursing home here? What are we going to do about it? You need more money in health. <laughs> no one ever says that. But that's what we need to do. The other big thing is we need, and we have money in this budget, for a public health fund, a foundation that lives aside the government that is run by cabinet directors tied to a state health improvement plan that has always targeted the best practices, but it has philanthropy at the table, it brings business back to the table, it brings everyone, other states have it, the CDC has one. We will never have enough money in government to solve this, and it will never be steady. We need endowments where we live only off the interest, but they're endowed. When we have an opiate settlement, we need to endow it. It cannot go to fill potholes, though we need to do that too, as we know. Um, just, you know, we know they eat cars here. I grew up here. And, but we need to endow the solutions and tie them to evidence-based practices so that they last in perpetuity. And I think we have a strange moment going on here. With this legislators, I meet with people on both sides, extremes on both sides. And I can tell you, they're talking about the social determinants of health and the healthcare industry, the hospital association, the children's hospital association, hospitals, they have community health dollars, but they're committed to invest in the community and they're putting them on the table. We need to share data and we need to work together to do uh, this. To the, the opioid Sorry. settlement? No, that's, that, that, was, <laughs> yes. that was great. To the opioid settlement, um, Doctor or, or Judge Polster may be listening right now, so we'll, Hi, we'll Judge. see. Yeah, we hope that he is. Doctor Cosgrove, yeah. I could feel you leaning in yeah, when so, Doctor Acton was talking about the sort of how payment works and the the penny on the dollar. Yeah. So uh, we're talking about finances, you know, and, and everybody's worried about the United States that we're spending now eighteen percent of our GDP on healthcare, uh, and we don't have the same sort of results that the rest of the other developed countries do. But interestingly, and I think this gets to the, the social determinants, if you look at a study that was done about two years ago and it compares Western Europe uh, with uh, the United States and it combines the social, what uh, they spend on social and health care, we're number four. We spend more on health care and less on social. They spend more on social and less on health care. I think there's a lesson there for us, and I think it speaks directly to what we're talking about here today. Those social determinants, the social programs are going to make the difference. The fact that we have seen the life expectancy in the United States go down over the last two years yes. um, is social, program, social mm -hmm. problems that we are not addressing. And so we've got to begin to change our emphasis. We can't do it with better heart surgery. Um, we can't do it with replacing more knees. 
We can do it by changing the environment that people live in and their, their expectations of how this, they live. This is largely to, um, and we're going to get to questions from the audience in a second, but this is all um, connected to a history of systemic and structural racism that has defined the United States and has defined our communities here in Cleveland. Um, the from the state perspective and from your perspective at the Department of Health, mm -hmm. um, is racial equity centered, is this conversation yes. centered on racial equity in ways yes. that you think are ultimately going to be useful? Yes, and health equity, and I've said this in my testimony, it will be a priority of my department. We're creating a whole war room just on policy because I think we need experts in housing, we need experts in health equity, and racism is a public health issue. Power is a public health issue. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we deal with, and you can name the issue from domestic violence to bullying in our schools to the epidemic of suicide we're seeing, power differentials create health problems. We now know, and the research is fantastic, showing macaque monkeys, you know, where you can control every possible variable, but they have a social hierarchy. And they put them in little cute little monkeys and MRI machines and they look at their arteries and the plaque, the, the subordinate monkey, you can barely see an opening and the dominant monkey, blood is flowing. Everything else controlled for. We've seen the cold virus studies done in Pittsburgh where they can tell by how people catch a cold more and they connect it back to if your parent owned their own home. We have to address the fact that Stress and chronic unremitting stress and the cortisol creates inflammation and it does wear and tear on our bodies and that's what's contributing to, um, to not living as long. We know that now. And, that's a, so, also, and I, I say yeah. that to you. Yes. <laughs> but it also contributes to how, how kids do in school. Yes. You know, because you're having increase of violence in schools uh, from, from kids who, uh, who have been raised in poverty, and you're also seeing an inability to learn, uh, which, is, which winds up causing kids not to be able to get great jobs. Um, and just before we move to the q and I, I want you, to, Dr. Cosgrove, to connect this to the work of the United Way. Um, because I, I know that, the, that there's been some shifts at the United Way in, in the recent years to move towards a real recognition that we, if we're not addressing the social determinants of health, we may not be actually doing the work we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, I think it's very important that we uh, realize this. United Way has been around for a very long time and has done great social work looking after the symptoms of uh, what we're talking about, basically about poverty. Uh, and it's now beginning to move uh, how it addresses the, the root cause being poverty. Uh, I think the first thing you have to do is raise the uh, understanding of the general population about what poverty does, uh, does to affect uh, health uh, of the community. <clears throat> and then we begin to, as a community, begin to address it uh, across the entire uh, organization. Just, uh, I mean, think about the poverty in Cleveland and, and what we talked about with kids, you now have uh, not been able to learn, you now have two-thirds of the Cleveland population is functionally illiterate. Um, and you can't expect you're going to get great jobs uh, and be uh, capable of uh, an income that will support a family uh, with uh, illiterate uh, in individuals because they haven't been able to learn because they grew up in poverty. 
So we have to break this cycle. And I, I'm delighted to see United Way changing the emphasis uh, from the symptoms to try and deal with the root causes. Today at the City Club, we're listening to a forum with Dr. Toby Cosgrove, Executive Advisor and former President and CEO of Cleveland Clinic, and Dr. Amy Acton, Director of Health for the Ohio Department of Health. We're about to begin our Q&A with all of you. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, those of you joining us via our live stream or our radio broadcast on WCPN. If you'd like to tweet a question, you can tweet it at the City Club, and our team will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today, our content coordinator, Bliss Davis, and our director of programming, Stephanie Jansky. Hi, thanks for a great presentation. Um, when I first moved to East Cleveland, I was appalled that not only was there a coal-fired power plant behind UH, but there was also another one planned by the medical center company on the border of Cleveland and East Cleveland. Um, I continue to be appalled that when they demolish buildings, the procedures aren't followed and we have dust flying everywhere, which is obviously including the lead-based paint that's in these older buildings, and I want to stop that. But the thing I really want to talk about is the emphasis that we need to put on our young people. Um, our young people need to have more uh, sports and physical activities options. They need to learn how to cook vegetables and, and eat vegetables, have more gardens, that sort of thing. But also, if you look at what prevents opiate problems, what prevents drug addiction, if you look at the work of Dr. Harvey Milkman and others, that what we need to do is have more options, more choices for our students to, um, to learn to do things, to get engaged with things. So please comment. Question mark. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Would you like to elaborate, Dr. Acton? <laughs> oh, I can't do yes again. Um, we, need, um, we need that, and we need all children to have access to those opportunities. Um, we also we need more time with our children and more relationships. Right now, I think... Um, there's both poverty of neglect and there's poverty of affluence and we are all so busy. Um, I have, um, you might have heard I have six children. I, 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 we're a blended family, kind of Brady Bunch style. Um, three of my own, um, three of my husband's. Um, that time that you have with them is so precious and I know it's very, very hard, but they need to be engaging us more. I'm very fearful for this generation that they're having so much interaction through social media that we also need to be doing those things. But those role models can have a tremendous influence. My husband is a middle school teacher and a coach. Uh, he's been, he was an elementary school teacher for 16 years, a middle school teacher and a coach. And I feel like those folks are having a tremendous influence as well. Um, but they need relationships with us. Thank you. Next question. Good afternoon. <clears throat> infant mortality. It seems like I've been hearing about infant mortality rate in Cleveland all of my life and how bad it is in the minority community. I'm just curious, what kind of uh, research is being done to address that problem? 
uh, is it bad all over the state like it is allegedly in Cleveland? And, and what are we doing about it? Thank you. Well, I think there's a lot going on right now. I think everybody pretty much recognizes that the infant mortality rate is not due to the fact that we don't have great uh, pediatric intensive care units and et cetera here. It's really due to uh, the uh, prenatal care that is being administered. Uh, and uh, we're reaching out uh, as a health care providers across uh, the entire community to uh, understand how we can uh, do this better and reach out into the community and try to visit uh, women when they first become pregnant and make sure that they are getting adequate uh, prenatal care, vitamins and everything that goes uh, with that. But that will reduce the incidence of premature uh, birth and also the incidence of uh, infant mortality rate. But it's all really, frankly, about uh, prenatal care and it's obviously three times, the infant mortality rate is three times higher uh, in African-American community than it is in uh, the uh, white community, uh, which uh, is associated with all the things that we've talked about as social determinants. Dr. Acton, can you talk about the specifically? Is it is it as is it really bad, worse here in Cleveland than it is elsewhere? Um, how does how does all of this play out? And you talked earlier about home visits as being yes. really important. I, I would like to give you the opportunity to speak more about that. So infant mortality is terrible in our state, writ large, and it strangely happens in pockets. And there are literal we have data um, at the at the Ohio Department of Health that can show not even zip code, but census tracts. So it's helping us to begin to be able to better target resources, um, to better target home visiting. Um, it is the very premature babies are still the biggest risk. We've been addressing safe sleep. We've been addressing other issues. But home visiting will be one of the greatest ways helping come alongside a mom during the pregnancy, helping get her to those appointments, um, making sure that pregnant mom, there's a lot of great studies on housing and stable housing as affecting infant mortality rates and being able to get the help. So there are a lot of new um, things we're trying to do as a state, um, but it is um, something that uh, home visiting has been intended to address. Dr. Acton, I feel like I've read research that suggests that it is um, that a major contributing factor to the, the high rates of infant mortality in the African-American community is um, a, simply the stress of being a black woman in Absolutely. a world that is defined by structural racism. And, and I know you've been probably reading, as I have, and I've been following nationally, um, we also have terrible rates of maternal mortality for, again, the most developed country. Um, and the same issues are at hand. So, and it's not just, again, how much you make. So a colleague who is a female doctor with everything else, all the advantages that I'm experiencing has worse outcomes. And it's being tied, again, to that effect of the chronic stress, the stress of being hypervigilant, the stress that you go through navigating a world where folks are reacting and engaging you in different ways. It also is, sadly enough, might change how your health provider listens to you or hears what you say. Mm. So, you know, we're just beginning, and as a state, we soon will be releasing 
uh, new data on maternal mortality, but that's another thing we're going to be taking on. Um, but the neat thing that we have available now is we can get much more focused and targeted by using good data. Data is so important. You're going to see that be a priority in the time to come. Um, I need to connect my public health data with all the healthcare data. And that, again, will help us better target interventions. So it is, it's real, it's bad here, um, but there are solutions that we should be engaging. And they're going to cost, but they're not costing as much as what it's costing when we don't do it. Yeah, but when you don't do it, you have premature death. I mean, just escalates. One you stay. Exactly. The cost of home visiting, nothing. Exactly. The cost of a NICU stay, one NICU stay, yeah. would offset so much. So we, that's where we at the policy level, and you, because I am telling you, please pay attention now and advocate in the health and human services. They are, uh, they are listening, and it's not too late. We're smack in the middle of the budget process. The Senate is making decisions soon. This is a time, no matter what your belief, get out there and start talking to those legislators because I'm telling you, there is a window of opportunity. If we don't seize it, you know, these are, this happens once in a generation. And in the middle of all the rhetoric going on, there's something strange happening in our state house, and I do hope you'll take advantage of it. It's worth noting that on May 31st, we're doing a panel conversation about the budget. Okay. <laughs> Sue Cray with Sisters of Charity Foundation of Cleveland. I really enjoyed your perspectives and elevating the role of the social determinants of health because we as a foundation have been really um, working in that space of the root causes of poverty. So now that we understand the role of the social determinants of health in, in uh, really impacting health status, what ideas do you have of reimagining the healthcare delivery system in this country to address this important topic? I think that that's an excellent point. I think clearly uh, there's two things that I would say. First of all, we've got to change the way we pay for health care right now. And that's, I, I think, um, if we're just paying for looking after people who are sick, um, that is going to, that uh, is where we're the model now. We have to pay for value. And as soon as we start paying for keeping people well, you'll see a shift in how the money is uh, apportioned across the country. The shift is we've now been at this almost 12 years since the Affordable Care Act came along, and the shift is very slow, uh, but it's, uh, it's going to be accelerated by the fact that Medicare is now going to have 50% of their uh, payments now uh, have some sort of a risk factor with it moving towards value. And I think slowly the country has to move that direction. I think the second thing that I would say is that you've got to begin to embrace the social agencies as part of uh, the healthcare mm -hmm. uh, format across the country. Hospitals right now and, and the healthcare providers are looking are essentially trained, paid, uh, and experienced to look after people who are sick. They're not uh, either paid or experienced or taught how to look, keep people from getting sick. We have to make that shift, and payment will do it, and embracing the social agencies will do it. There's a little, there's a weird thing though, that if 70%, as we said earlier, 70% of outcomes isn't associated with any care you're delivering, you're actually, I mean, from a devil's advocate point of view, you're asking to be paid for something you haven't done or had any influence over. 
Well, we, we haven't had it, we, you know, we haven't been trained, but you know, clearly if we're going to get paid, let's say you're going to get paid a um, dollar a month to look after some, look, you're going to want to keep people well and out of the hospital for doing that. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to shift where the money goes. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't want people to have to go in and have uh, heart surgery because right. uh, it'll blow your budget. So once you start to get paid for keeping people well, I think that's a whole different uh, mm -hmm. paradigm that we're talking about and yeah. the, the shift has just been too damn slow. So on the record, Toby Cosgrove, we need fewer heart surgeons. <laughs> <laughs> All the really handsome just ones really have retired. Ones. <laughs> yeah, we need good ones. Yeah. Our next question. Hi, my name is Marina Vladova. I'm an educator and writer. Um, I'm so impressed with both um, Dr. Acton and Dr. Cosgrove. Um, Dr. Acton, your passion is inspiring and your experience is just so impressive. Um, I understand that you're both talking about putting health in the center of discussions, but we live in an environment in my lifetime I've never seen so partisan and divisive and tribal. How do we get there? How do we put health in the center of discussions about gun control and the environment, and climate change, uh, urban planning, um, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you. You're the politician. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's, it's daunting, because again, I'll say, I'm, I was you at a forum like this in Columbus two months ago, wondering and feeling a little bit hopeless um, and I started to read some things in the paper and I noticed like there's this really different cabinet being formed and then at the local level my mental health people were like did you see this director of mental health you know she was a really grassroots person and you know first of all when you get that call I got a very strange phone call <laughs> and everything in me said stay as far away from this as you possibly can I mean, there are some very divisive things going on and things, you know, that are painful to me to see going on. But I had that feeling of it being like when you're in the National Guard and you get called to duty and I went to my boss and I just said, please don't be mad at me because I had to make a decision in a weekend and leave everything I knew and walk away and swear and, and then it's just been a blur since, literally blur. But I just felt that I, I couldn't look the other way anymore and for some reason this has happened to me at this point in time. And I feel um, that each of us have to kind of call ourselves out. And when I went to that legislature, who I did not know, I was supposed to talk about budget numbers. They gave me a script. What you do in testimony is you talk about budget numbers. And I decided at the last minute, I'm just, they don't know what public health is. I've got to teach them. They don't, how are they ever going to invest in something they don't even know what it is? And so I just changed it. I just changed connecting with them and relating back to what it is that's going on in their lives. And sure enough, every single one of them has a story. And every single one of them has something they're passionate about. And being in public service is a courageous thing, even with the ones we disagree with. So I just think we have to change our engagement. And, and right now, the stars are aligning where I think you can. So please don't give up. And don't, you know, there's so, so much 
that tells us a story of how rancor it is. We're all people just trying, most of us want the same thing. So keep holding to that and get out there and do it. Yeah, let me just add that I think you also have to uh, be, be able to make uh, tough decisions um, and uh, to not necessarily go with the, the flow. I mean, certainly, mm -hmm. I, I'm just thinking about what we did at, in terms of, at the Cleveland Clinic in terms of not hiring smokers. I, I didn't get a lot of attaboys for that. Um, but nonetheless, I, I thought it was clearly the right thing to do. And, and, you know, sometimes leaders, and we're all leaders, whether you're a leader of a family or you're a leader of your Cub Scout pack or you're a leader of a big business, um, you have to take people to places they don't know they need to go. Uh, and you have to make uh, tough decisions uh, that may not uh, ultimately um, at the time be popular, but they're the right decisions. So, um, and all of us have those opportunities at one level or another. Uh, so uh, ultimately, it'll get it done. Next question. Hi, Adrian Munder from the Sisters of Charity Foundation. And earlier in the conversation, Dr. Cosgrove, you talked about connecting social services and healthcare and also thinking about that data flow and how there's op perhaps opportunities mm -hmm. to look at 211 and linking those services to the healthcare. I wonder if you could comment on that. Yeah, two-on-one is one of the uh, great things that the uh, Cleveland, uh, the United Way has done in association with the hospitals uh, in Cleveland, and it's a number that you can call and they will direct you to the appropriate um, uh, social service that will support you during that time. And it was done by a grant uh, of four and a half million dollars that came to support that, and I think it's a tremendous service. Uh, that has gotten a lot of use and helped a lot of people move in the right direction. And strangely, 211 is very decentralized. There's no standard. So I actually came and learned from folks in Cleveland because we're trying to save our 211 in Columbus. There, you know, and so having that, and I will say too that I kind of ragged on the phone earlier, but I'll just say some of the most innovative solutions especially when we're working with homeless youth, is we're trying to use this phone, and we're working with our United Way, and it's a navigator. It's a, it can be turned into an ally. It can be an interactive device that pings you and helps you find what you need. Mm -hmm. And so technology is also, and I know philanthropy is really supporting a lot of innovative things we can do there. Um, so, um, but what about this, this question about data, the data that's collected through 211? Um, there's a yes, lot of information that there that could be, and, and specifically if it's standardized across municipalities, across the state, the, seems to me the State Department of Health might be able to do something with that. <laughs> so you just added something to my list of yeah. dreams that I'm trying to uh, yeah. accomplish. And, and you know, that's one of the wonderful things we have right now is, you know, in healthcare, uh, it's stunning the amount of data that's out there. The total amount of data in healthcare is now doubling every 73 days. And you know, we now have the capacity to mine that. That's the problem, but we now have the capacity to mine that data. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you start to, you'll, you, you, as you look at the data, you will learn things you didn't ever expect to learn. And that is the beauty that technology brings to us in a, in a whole new way to help us understand our problems and help find solutions. So then from a public health perspective or a community health perspective, this 2-1-1 data could be revealing Absolutely. all sorts of things that we have not yet begun to look at. And the governor and the lieutenant governor have started Innovate Ohio, um, a data initiative, a huge 
data lake, if you would, because we were talking a little bit earlier about this very topic. I think we have to set the data free. Um, and, uh, and I think we're right on that. Again, we're just living at a very interesting time. I mean, I feel so grateful because I think the things we've dreamed about doing are now possible. Um, so we're on a cusp of something great, and that will we'll have new answers 100 years from now yeah. for you. And I hope we'll be I hope living sooner. No, a lot faster than that. Let's yeah. go sooner. Where's our next question? Oh, here we are. Well, Dr. Cosgrove, here's an attaboy for the no, no smoking rule, and also for the low sugar and low, or no sugar, uh, soft drinks and low grease in the food. Uh, I've unfortunately had a number of occasions to be at the Cleveland Clinic facilities, and I appreciate it. But my question is for Dr. Acton. Uh, and it's... You, you just seem like you needed an attaboy. So. I, I need a little help. Thank, th th thank you, Bob, for that. The, de the devil's always in the details. Yeah. In the cigarette smoking settlement, hundreds of millions of dollars came to the states, mm -hmm. supposedly for preventive programs. I don't know what the actual percentage is, but if it's more than 5% that was actually spent on preventive services, I don't know what it would be. So my question to you, doctor, mm -hmm. is in the state government, and I know it's very early in this regime, but there obviously is going to be an opioid settlement somewhere down the road. Is there a task force, at least in process of forming, to influence whether it's the federal judge or the state legislature as to how these monies can be preserved and spent on what they are intended for, not on all the garbage that the smoking settlement went for? That's a great, you're absolutely right. He is absolutely right. By the way, we're taking on tobacco 21 and vaping. Terrible epidemic. I could talk forever. The governor cares passionately about this issue. He is very passionate about tobacco, even as a senator. And we have learned, I hope we have learned the lesson of the tobacco settlement. I, I saw the last trickle of any dollars that we even had disappear from the budget. Um, so one of the odd things the governor did after that weird weekend, and then he swears me in, is he made me sit in on every single budget of all the other agencies to find the health that wove through it. And he said, and at the end of the week, that's when I proposed the idea for the pub, that, of the foundation or fund that would live on forever. And I specifically said, this is, we cannot make this mistake again. The governor is paying very close attention to this. Um, this money should go for prevention. I'll never, ever get enough GRF state dollars to do what needs done in prevention, but we'll have a chance to, to endow, live off the interest in perpetuity, the most conservative investment you could do, but leave that money earmarked for prevention. I, I couldn't agree more. We get an opportunity here. Let's do it right. So did I just add to you, add to your list, you know, oh, we, no. Um, you know, we, we um, continue to subsidize the growing of sugar. Um, and you all pay for that two ways. You pay for that in the epidemic of obesity, and you pay for it in the, uh, in the in subsidizing growing of sugar. And it's not just soft drinks. It's in everything. Yes, it is. And somewhere along the way, we've got to figure out how we begin to 
if you will, reduce the incentive to put sugar in absolutely everything we eat. Um, and uh, Dan, I would want to talk to you about the donuts here, too. Except I think you took one. No, I didn't. No, I, that <laughs> I was my I evil twin brother who did that. No, I, 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 I try to only argue with the chef maybe once a week. <laughs> okay. We've already talked about coffee. Anyway, thank you very much, Dr. Cosgrove, Dr. Acton, please, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Today at the City Club, we've been listening to a conversation on the power of social determinants of health in our health outcomes. Friends of the City Club, I thank you for being here today. Dr. Cosgrove, Dr. Acton, thank you as well. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.